Matthew 26, 26 through 35. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. The word of the Lord. Well, Central West End Church uh, is about four years old, and um, up until this time, we've been what you might call a startup church. That means it's kind of like a teenager still living at home. Um, We have a parent church, Central Presbyterian Church over in Clayton, and uh, it's kind of like still living under the roof of your parents and and getting an allowance, and, and they help you out. But now, we're in the process of becoming what's called a local church in our denomination. That means like moving out of mom and dad's house and taking responsibility for ourselves, uh, financial responsibility, oversight, leadership responsibility, things like that. That means this is a really good time for us to revisit the vision of this church. Why are we here? What is God calling us to be and to do in this community? What's the vision? We're actually going to spend the next several weeks looking at that. And the vision of Central West End Church is to see a city made new by the gospel, spiritually, socially, and culturally. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel. So the gospel is foundational for everything we do here. So we're actually going to take the first few weeks of this series just to look at that. What is the gospel? You know, um, obviously it has something to do with Jesus, but beyond that, um, opinions start multiplying pretty rapidly. Uh, one of the common answers in our culture is that the gospel is primarily the moral teachings of Jesus Christ, uh, that the gospel is primarily all about Jesus teaching us how to be better people and how to make the world a better place. And the question comes up, well, what about his death? Doesn't that have something to do with the gospel too? And again, the answer in our popular culture would be something along the lines of, well, the the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is an example of the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus would have us show to one another. And that, in fact, many people would say, you know, look, all this stuff about Jesus' death on the cross being some kind of a, a blood sacrifice in order to make atonement for sin... All that stuff is really a later invention of the church. 
That's, that's, that came from the Apostle Paul or other church leaders many years after Jesus lived and died, but it was never a part of Jesus' original understanding of his life and his mission. So here's the big question. What, what is the real meaning of the gospel? Well, let me ask you another question. What if we could ask Jesus himself? What if we could say, hey, Jesus, what was your understanding of your life and your mission, and especially your death? Was it just a horrible accident or an example of selfless love, or was it something else? What do you think Jesus would say? Uh, we're going to take a look at that, because here's why this is so important. Um, of course we want to be better people. Of course we want to make the world a better place. And we're going to talk a lot about that uh, in the next several weeks. But if Jesus' death is only an example to us, um, then basically he's offering us a template and saying, here's what a selfless, loving life looks like. Now you go out and live the same way. And if you do, then we'll all make the world a better place. Is, is that the real meaning of the gospel? Is that what Jesus would say? Well, let's take a look. In this passage that we just read, Jesus himself is telling us the meaning of the gospel by explaining the meaning of his death. And we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to see the centrality of his death, the, the meaning of his death, and lastly, how we should respond to his death. Okay? The centrality, the meaning, and how we should respond to Jesus' death. So first, the centrality of his death. Now, this is one of the most famous events in the life of Jesus. Uh, it's called the Last Supper. In a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, and then crucified. And he's taking um, this last meal to share with his disciples in order to explain to him, to them, that is, the meaning of his death. But what night is it when this takes place? Passover. Passover is the defining event in the history of Israel. God um, delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And on the night that he saved them out of slavery, he told them to eat a meal. In fact, he said, every year after this, you are to eat this meal as a way of commemorating the salvation of God, bringing you out of slavery in Egypt. This is the defining event in the history of Israel. Friends, it is not a coincidence that Jesus, a Jewish man, takes Passover, the defining event in the history of Israel, to explain to his followers, Jewish people, the meaning of his death. Because Passover is a dramatic retelling of the story of God's salvation. And in every Passover meal, there's somebody whose job it is to preside over the meal. They're the storyteller, and it's their job to relay the significance of everything that happens in the meal. So here's Jesus, and if you look at verse 26, um, he's presiding over the meal. Now, here's how this worked. At the beginning of the Passover, one of the kids um, that's sitting at the table asks the question, why is this night different from all other nights? And then it, the storyteller goes into the story. The person who's presiding begins to go through all the different elements in the meal and explain. So the presider will take the bread, and, and the presider will say, this is the bread of our affliction. So here in verse 26, here's Jesus. He's presiding over the meal. He's explaining the significance of Passover. And it says, he took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body. Now, I don't know, this really doesn't impact us, but everyone present there would have been shocked at what Jesus just said. Because he takes the bread, but instead of saying, this is the bread of 
our affliction. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. And then right after that, he takes the cup, another one of the elements, and he says, this cup is my blood of the covenant. Now that is sacrificial language, and I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. But for now, here's what this means. Do you realize what Jesus is doing? He's taking the Passover, which for centuries they've been observing without change, without modification. It is the defining event in the history of Israel and their whole conception as a people. He's taking that meal, that event, and he is completely redefining it and saying, it's all about me. That, that everything in the Passover is pointing to me. My death is the ultimate exodus. My death is the ultimate deliverance from slavery. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying the Passover is all about him. Now, who says something like that? Who does something like that? Um, he's saying that my sacrificial death is on your behalf, and it's also the center and the climax of all history. That's what he's doing here. And friends, I want to help us grasp really the significance and the importance of this because nobody doubts that's what Jesus is saying here. What they do doubt is that Jesus ever said it at all. Like I said, many people will say, well, look, the Bible was changed so many times, years and years after the original manuscripts were written. It's been changed so many times, and all this stuff about Jesus saying that his death is a sacrifice for sin, all of that stuff was church leaders years and years later. They were doing this to consolidate their power base, but Jesus never really said any of that stuff originally. That's the challenge. So what do we say to that? Well, you know, we're in church right now, um, which means we've got our church hats on. I want to invite us to take off our church hat and to put on our historian hat. Did you know that historical inquiry into the life of Jesus is one of the largest academic fields in the world today? So for instance, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of books out there on the, quote, historical Jesus. Now, here's the thing. About 10% of those books are by Christians who are advocating for the Christian faith. On the other side of the spectrum, another 10% of those books are skeptics, and they're advocating against the Christian faith. But the remaining 80% of all the books about the historical Jesus are by professional historians who really, they don't have a dog in the fight. The groups on the, on the outside, you know, the Christians and the skeptics, they've got a dog in this fight, so to speak. But the professional historians, the remaining 80% of all those books, they don't really have any interest in the theological claims of what Christians are saying. Their, their primary job as historians, what they really care about is to say, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? What can we know about Jesus with a reasonable degree of confidence? And understand, they do not say, what can we believe? They say, what can we know? Because historical inquiry is a science. It's not talking about myths and legends. It's not talking about Middle Earth or Wakanda. It's talking about real events that happened in this world. And, and the historians, the professional historians in the top academic institutions all over the world, they have precise, measurable, agreed-upon criteria by which they assess the reliability of whether or not some historical event actually happened. So one of the, the primary criteria that all of the historians use is something called multiple attestation. Multiple 
attestation. Now, hang with me for just a second here, okay? Imagine that you are a, a news reporter, newspaper reporter, and you get a hot tip that, um, that a tiger escaped from the zoo and was last seen driving down Main Street in a Maserati. That's right, kind of an unbelievable claim, but you know what, you're an open-minded reporter, so you go out to investigate, and you meet somebody who attests to having seen this. Now, you've got one eyewitness, here's the question, do you print the story? No way. It's just one witness, and they could be crazy, they could be lying, but then suppose another witness comes up completely unrelated to the first person. They haven't talked. They haven't coordinated their stories. And this person also attests to having seen the same thing. That's a lot stronger. Friends, historians, whenever they can get two independent historical sources both attesting to the same thing, they say that the likelihood of that historical event increases exponentially. So when it comes to the... To the um, to the idea of Jesus having a Passover meal with his disciples on the night before he was crucified in which he said, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant. We have not one, not even two, but three independent historical sources all attesting to the same historical event. Now listen, professional historians are extremely cautious about what they will say we can know about the life of Jesus. There may be about a dozen things that, that professional historians will say, this almost certainly happened. This is one of them. This is one of them. That means that, that from a historical perspective, okay, not a faith perspective, not subjective spiritual speculation, but from a historical perspective, um, we, we can know with the highest degree of confidence that the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, almost certainly saw his death as being a sacrifice on behalf of others, and he saw it as the center and climax of history. That is one of the surest things in all of history that we can possibly know about Jesus of Nazareth, which means that, that if you're exploring faith or if you're a Christian, one of the most important things we can possibly know is that this idea of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross is not a private spiritual opinion. It's public truth. That Jesus believed this. Jesus taught this. Jesus claimed this. This is one of the surest things we could possibly know about Jesus. So when we come to the gospel and we start asking the question, well, what is the gospel? Um, this is one of the things. Do you understand this is way more audacious and extravagant than a tiger driving a Maserati? For, for a human being to make a claim like this is incredibly audacious, but that's what Jesus said. That's what he was saying here. That is the centrality of his death, and that's the first thing we see here, the centrality of his death. But secondly, Jesus shows us the meaning of his death. If we go back to the meal, when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, I mentioned that's sacrificial language. Now, let me explain why. Do you know why Passover was called Passover? God went to Moses and he said, Moses, I want to deliver Egypt out of slavery. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and I want you to say, thus says the Lord, let my people go. But I'm telling you right now, Moses, he's not going to do it. The only way that uh, Pharaoh will let the people of Israel go free is if I bring judgment down on the land, if I bring judgment down on the oppressor. And that's exactly what he did. On the night of Passover, 
God sends an angel of destruction through the land of Egypt. He brings judgment down on evil, down on injustice, down on the oppressor. Now, we talked a little bit about this last week, but let's do a little bit of a recap. On the one hand, we modern, tolerant, Western people, we really bristle against the idea of a God of judgment. On the other hand, we demand that evil be judged. We demand that evil be punished. That, that is so core inside of us that the only thing that makes us angrier than evil itself is when evil goes unpunished. And one of my favorite and fastest ways to make that point is simply by mentioning a name, Dolores Umbridge, Senior Undersecretary to the Minister of Magic and High Inquisitor of Hogwarts. If you have ever read the Harry Potter books or seen the movies, your blood just started to boil a little bit because that character is one of the meanest, nastiest, vilest, wickedest characters in all literature. So when Harry Potter starts telling his classmates, hey, I saw the evil Lord Voldemort. He's returned. He's come back to wreak havoc on the magical world. Dolores Umbridge calls Harry Potter in detention and she makes him start writing lines. I will not tell lies. But it's a magic cursed pen so that every letter Harry writes in the parchment also carves the letters into his hand with excruciating pain. Dolores Umbridge is one of, she's evil incarnate. And, and the only thing that makes us angrier than the actual evil she's perpetrating is the fact that she's getting away with it. And every fiber in the core of our being is just crying out, we want to see evil punished. We want to see judgment come down. So by the end of the movie, when she finally gets carried away by the centaurs, you know, you just want to like stand up, pump your fist in the air and say, yes, finally. That, friends, when we come to this Passover story here, do you realize what this means for us? Here's the real challenge. Because we have this instinct for justice, we also have this instinct to divide the world into the good people and into the bad people. The good people over here and the bad people over there. And of course, we put ourselves in the good category. But I mean, think about this. You know, as a rule, by and large, in our world, in our culture, we reject binaries. We say binaries are bad. Binaries are oppressive. This is one binary we cling to. The good people over here, the bad people over there, and we're in the good category. So when we look at the Passover story, um, we say, aha, another binary. On the one hand, there's Pharaoh and Egypt. They're the oppressors. They're the bad people. But over here is Israel. They're the oppressed. They're the good ones. But that is exactly where the Passover story starts getting in our face and messing with us. Because if you look at the story, um, on the night when God's judgment comes down on evil, do you remember what he says to Israel? He doesn't say, now stand back and, and watch what I do to these guys over here. No. He says, Israel, you need to take a lamb slaughter it and smear its blood over the doorpost of your house. And when my judgment comes down, when I see the blood, my judgment will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover. Unless Israel took shelter under the blood of the lamb, the Passover story is showing us they were just as liable to judgment as Egypt. They needed a substitute to take the judgment that they deserved are you beginning to see why the Passover story is so unnerving to us? It's messing with our binary. 
It's saying that we're all liable to judgment because we all have the same capacity for evil in our hearts. Friends, God's judgment, God withheld his judgment when he saw the blood of the lamb, which means that he was able to pass over the sin and evil of Israel. You know, when we divide the world into good people and bad people, and then we put ourselves in the good category, you know what we're doing? We're passing over ourselves. There's nothing more spiritually dangerous than that. The Passover is showing us that we're all liable to judgment because we all have the same capacity for evil. One of my favorite illustrations of this comes from the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He uh, uh, writes a lot about his experiences in the gulag. Now, do you know what the gulag is? Some of you are thinking, no, but with a name like that, I don't want to know. Even if you knew nothing else about it, if I said, hey, what are you doing today? You want to head over to the gulag? You'd say, uh, thank you so much for asking, but um, you know, I have a root canal scheduled for today. The gulag was one of the most brutal, unjust prison systems in modern history. The Soviet Union had a whole series uh, or network of these prison camps throughout Siberia. These were places of, of untold brutality. Prisoners regularly starved or froze or were beaten to death in these places. And you could get sent there for any reason. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, he wrote a couple of critical things about Joseph Stalin in a private letter, and he found himself, he landed in the gulag. And so in, in his books about this experience, he tells the story about how once he and some fellow prisoners were being marched through the freezing cold for days on end by their captors. And he says, I wanted to toss my captors into the pit. I wanted to see judgment come down on them. Everything inside of me was crying out for judgment on my captors. But then he remembered something. It, re it was like a spiritual awakening for Solzhenitsyn because he remembered that he had been a member of the Russian army at one point and that he actually had almost signed up for uh, what would later become the KGB, which was this incredibly unjust police force. And at that moment, he realized as he's looking at his captors, looking at his oppressors, he's realizing... It's only because of the way things turned out that they're the oppressors and I'm the oppressed. The roles could easily have been the other way around. I have just as much capacity in my heart for evil as they do. And so he wrote some of the most famous words he's ever written. He said, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through every human heart. He's saying, we're all guilty. We all have the same capacity for evil. The problem is, by and large, we all are blind to our capacity for evil. So if you look at Peter in this story, um, after the supper, Jesus tells the disciples, they're all gonna betray him. But look at Peter's response. In verse 33, he says, Lord, I will never fall away. Basically, Peter's saying, Jesus, you see these guys over here? They're the bad guys. They're the ones that might let you down, but I would never do something like that. And Jesus comes back at him and he says, Peter, you don't know your own heart. You're blind to the evil that's in your own heart because this very night, you're gonna betray me three times. And just to show you the level of Peter's blindness, he shoots back at Jesus again and he says, Lord, even if I have to die, I will never betray you. Do you know what Peter was doing? He was passing over himself. 
We do the same thing. We all pass over ourselves. We're all guilty. We're all liable to judgment because we all have the same capacity for evil in our lives. That's why Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. He said, I am the ultimate Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. And unless you take shelter under my blood, there's no way for God's judgment to pass over you. Do you realize what this means? Passover begins with the question, why is this night different from all other nights? Christianity begins with the question, why is this Savior different from all other saviors? Well, here's why. If we look once again at our passage, you know, at the end of this passage, Peter, he makes an oath. He says, Lord Jesus, I will never deny you. It's an oath. It's the most solemn oath he could possibly have made. You know, um, I don't know where you may be at spiritually in this room this morning, but wherever you're at, we all have some kind of concept of salvation, whatever that might mean to us. So if you're more spiritually minded, maybe that means something like nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness or something like that. Even if you're more of a secularly uh, inclined person, salvation might mean to you like being a better person and making the world a better place. But we all have some concept of salvation and we all have this default mode of thinking that says it all depends on us that we're the ones who have to accomplish this. We're the ones who have to achieve this for ourselves, whatever concept we might have. So whether it's uh, spiritual, religious, secular, wherever you are on the spectrum, we all have this idea that the only way we can be saved is if we obey, we try hard, if we're committed, if we're devoted, or as the Buddha said, strive ceaselessly. We think the default mode of our heart is to think it all depends on us. So when you look at Peter, here's Peter, he's taking this oath and he thinks, I'm someone of high moral fiber. I'm someone who's standing on high moral ground. This all depends on my strength, my power, my commitment to Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's passing over himself. But but when you look at the gospel, what makes the gospel of Jesus so different from every other form of salvation? If you look at it, How is the Savior different from all others? Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you know what that is? That's an oath. That is the most solemn kind of oath you could make, just like Peter made an oath. In fact, You get into the original language, both Jesus and Peter are using the same um, grammatical construction that in that language is the strongest possible way of making an oath. Basically, to paraphrase, Peter is saying, Lord, no way will I fail you. And Jesus is saying, Peter, no way will I fail you. A mere hours later, Peter was weeping bitterly because he had just failed his oath. Jesus was hanging on a cross in order to fulfill his oath. Friends, Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of everything the Passover story is pointing us to. He, the, God's judgment fell on Jesus so that it could pass over us. That's the meaning of Jesus' death. That's the meaning of the gospel. It doesn't depend on your strength, on your devotion, on your commitment. The gospel is not all about your commitment to Jesus You are not saved by the strength of your commitment to him. The gospel says you were saved by the strength of his commitment to you. That's the gospel. That's the meaning of his death. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the centrality of Jesus' death. 
He's saying, my sacrificial death on your behalf is the center of history. He, historically, he said this. He claimed this. The meaning of his death is there is no other way to be saved. We can't pass over ourselves. We, the only way God's judgment can pass over us is if we take shelter under the ultimate blood of the ultimate lamb, Jesus Christ. But lastly, how do we respond to his death? We're actually going to spend the next several weeks rolling out a lot of the implications of this, but let me offer you just a couple for this morning. First, if you're exploring faith in Jesus this morning, here's what this means. We live in a spiritually pluralistic age. That means there are hundreds of spiritual paths available to you. We also live in a consumeristic do-it-yourself age. That means that we are regularly trained and encouraged to pick and choose what we like out of all these different spiritual paths and then customize them into something that, quote, works for you. It's like bespoke spirituality. It's kind of like, you know, that, your, that custom diet plan or that custom workout plan that was designed just for you by the personal trainer in the boutique gym down the street. Everything in our world is designed, it's customized to meet your needs and your preferences. Now, that's a challenge for us, but the challenge cuts two ways. And here's what I mean. First, there's a challenge to Christianity in this. As I just mentioned, there are hundreds of spiritual beliefs out there. But if you look at all of those beliefs, um, you can't fact check any of those beliefs. So for instance, um, take the statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Can you fact check that? Can you whip out your smartphone right now and just Google that and fact check whether or not that's true? No. That that claim is completely immune to being proved false. There's no way you can fact check something like that. The gospel, however, Christianity, you can fact check. It, it, it is very vulnerable. It is not immune to being proved wrong or false by historical inquiry because the gospel rises or falls on historical events that actually happened or not. So either Jesus lived or not. Either Jesus was crucified or not. Either his tomb was empty or not. And either Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant or not. You can fact check those things. That all of those things are subject, vulnerable to historical inquiry. If you debunk those events, you just debunked Christianity. The whole thing rises or falls on whether or not these events actually happened. And that is a real challenge to Christianity. But here's the challenge to you. If these things, in fact, happened, and they did, that means that you have to receive Jesus on his terms or not at all. You either receive Jesus on his terms or not at all. Because, listen, you, you can create a custom Jesus according to your own needs and preferences. Of course you can do that. You're perfectly free to do that. But understand that if you do that, you're not in touch with the real Jesus. That's a Jesus that you're making up, but it's not the real historical Jesus. Jesus said, my sacrificial death on your behalf is the center of history. You're more than free to make up a Jesus that works for you, but you're not in touch with the real Jesus if you do that. And I understand, you know, that sounds so offensive in our culture. This idea, because like I said, we're consumers. We expect everything to be catered and customized to our preferences. We want life, everything is on demand, including Jesus. But Jesus doesn't cooperate with that. You either receive Jesus on his terms 
or not at all. That means that, that Jesus is the one making the claims here, and Jesus is claiming that his death, his sacrificial death on your behalf is the center of history. Now, either you believe him or not, but the fact that he said this is not a private spiritual opinion. It's public truth. The gospel is public truth in a pluralistic, consumeristic age. Jesus is not presenting himself to you as belonging in, in the category of private spiritual opinions. He's not presenting himself to you as belonging to the category of, of subjective spiritual speculation. He's saying, my death, everything I'm saying, what I'm doing, it's public truth in a pluralistic, consumeristic age. You either receive him on his terms or not at all. And understand, you know, Jesus lived in a pluralistic culture too. It wasn't like back then there was only one or two options. Jesus, in the Roman Empire, there were literally, just like our age, hundreds of spiritual options, hundreds of gods to choose from. And Jesus stands up in the middle of the Roman Empire and says, none of those gods can save you. I'm the only one who can. Friends, I know that sounds offensive because we're consumers. We expect everything to be on demand for us, including Jesus. But Jesus does not cooperate with that. He's the one you have to deal with. These are the claims you have to wrestle with. It's like the law of gravity, you know, you don't demand that the law of gravity adjust to you. You adjust to it. It's the same thing with Jesus. You either receive him on his terms or not at all. But secondly, if you're a Christian this morning, whether you just crossed the line of faith last week or whether you've been walking and following Jesus for years and, and even decades, here's what this means for you. And by the way, if you are investigating, I would invite you to uh, listen into this a little bit. If you're a Christian this morning, this is showing us that we are always constantly in need of spiritual renewal. That there's never a moment in our lives, we never graduate, we never arrive, we never stop needing spiritual renewal. I mean, look at Peter. At this point in the story, he's been following Jesus for three years, one-on-one, -on -one, personal following Jesus. You'd think after three years, you know, he'd be advanced. But this night was the night of his greatest personal failure. That means that for us as Christians, it's so easy for us to feel like we, we you know, walk into church and we have to hide our sin and our, and our brokenness. It's so easy for us to think, I can't believe, I'm not supposed to still be this broken. I'm not supposed to still be this messed up. I'm not supposed to still be this much in need. I'm not supposed to still hurt this much and be hurting others this much. But when you become a Christian, one of the things that, that you have to start wrestling with is Jesus is saying, you never stop needing this meal. You, you never stop needing my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. We always need that. Friends, the vision of Central West End Church is to see a city made new by the gospel. That's our vision because it's God's vision, to make all things new. That means that as Christians, we will never be a part of that vision unless we see that we are constantly also in need of spiritual renewal, that spiritual renewal must begin with the church. Because it's so easy for us to look around at the world around us and we see all kinds of things, brokenness, spiritual distortions, and to think, the world needs help, but I don't. It's all so easy to look at the world and see political idolatry, economic idolatry, consumeristic idolatry, sexual idolatry, and to think that we're somehow removed from that. Don't you know that we are all of us just as affected by those things, that we are all just as vulnerable to those kinds of idolatries and distortions, which means that we can never, as Christians, look at a world that is in constant need of healing and renewal and excuse ourselves from that need. If we do that, we're just passing over ourselves again. 
at, at the spiritual renewal must begin with the church. It must begin with our realization that we are constantly in need of this rule, that do you know that you need this, that we are hungering and thirsting for this kind of renewal. If we can't own our need for this renewal, we'll never be able to offer it to the world around us. Which means that we're all faced with the same question, whether you're exploring faith or been walking with Jesus for years. The question is, do you know that you need this? Do you know that you need this Jesus? Not some other Jesus, this Jesus. The one and only Jesus who said, my sacrificial death on your behalf is the center of history. The gospel is public truth in a pluralistic, consumeristic age. It's either true for everyone or not at all. Do you know that it's true? And is this truth, is this life, is this love, is this sacrifice, is this blood working renewal in your life as well? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel Lord, we're just beginning to dig into this, but I pray for us. I pray for myself. I pray for us as a church. I pray that you would, for everyone gathered here this morning, that you would bring our need for this gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts and our lives, that we would never consider ourselves as graduating or having arrived, but that we would be in constant, desperate need for the renewal of Jesus. Lord, we want to be a vehicle of your gospel in this community as a church. We want to see people made new. Lord, help us to be made new constantly that we may be vessels of that same renewal, your renewal to the world around us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.